0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. What does it mean to be working class in Canada? It wasn't so long ago that politicians of all stripes would claim to work for working families or families that were led by blue collar workers. That expression was lost sometime in the 1990s when Bill Clinton's Democrats discovered the middle class and focused their attentions instead on that enormous segment of the population. That obsession was adopted by the Justin Trudeau liberals in the 2015 campaign. Now politicians may have an idea, but how have historians thought about it? The fact is that what makes up the working class in Canada has been a hot subject of discussion for historians for over 40 years, giving us some of the most fascinating discussions and disputes. Michael Boudreau and Bonnie Huskins have brought new insight on just what it means to be working class with a new book entitled Just the Usual Work, The Social Worlds of Ida Martin, working-class diarist. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. Michael Boudreau and Bonnie Huskins are both professors at St. Thomas University, and I've reached them at Michael's office in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Michael and Bonnie, welcome to Witness to Yesterday.
1: Thank you very much for having us. We're delighted to be here.
2: Yes, indeed.
0: I mean, it's it's unusual that we have two people, and it's doubly unusual that we're doing this through the internet, Uh, but I'll start with you. Um, You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened on August 10th, 1945.
2: Well, my maternal grandmother, who is also the diarist that we cover in our book, she begins her career as a diary writer. We're not 100% sure why she begins writing a diary at about 38 years old. It could be that she started her diary as a travel journal because she decided to go and visit her sister in Boston at around the same time. Or she could have received a diary book for her birthday because her birthday was around the same time. But for whatever reason, she began writing a diary and she kept writing for about 47 years.
0: Which makes it a remarkable document, doesn't it?
2: Oh, it does. It does. We're not 100% sure why she continued to write. Uh, we have some theories. Uh, one might be that she wanted to leave a record for her family. Uh, another reason might be that she found it emotionally satisfying to, um, to keep track of community, family even the world around her. And indeed, many of her, her nieces and nephews referred to her as the grandmother of the entire clan. So perhaps this is part of her role as a grandmother to keep track of family and community.
0: Yes. Michael, uh, I mean, I can't, I can't, as a historian, lose sight of the fact that August 10th, 1945, is just a few days after the first bombs are dropped on, on Japan, the first nuclear bombs. Um, Do you think that might have had some sort of a a jarring effect on Ida?
1: It, it may have i mean as as through the rest of the the diaries um, she does comment on uh, a lot of social and political events so it, it wasn't just uh, a traditional introspective diary she was looking at the world around her she doesn't necessarily mention this one particular item but she mentions the the nuclear arms race um, the repatriation of the constitution indeed she wrote to all of the premiers um, trying to express her views about the about that on Fortunately, we were not able to, to find those letters. Uh, she was excited about Sputnik, of course, the royal family. Um, she followed them religiously. Um, but the irony is, too, even before she became a diarist, um, in terms of starting this, her life as a diarist, she first wanted to be a nurse and it didn't really work out for her primarily because of finances. So part of in one way in one sense we're actually glad that she didn't become a nurse <laughs> because if she did she wouldn't she, have had time. <laughs> she probably wouldn't have writ- written a diary or yes. or if she did it would have been a much different kind of diary. It probably would have been about her life as mm-hmm. as a, as a nurse which would have been fascinating in and of itself but instead we are left with these rich documents uh, of her life in St John.
0: So you're prompting me. Usually we ask about sources at the end of the interview, our classic Champlain Society question about sources. But uh, since you've brought up the diary, can you tell us about the format? I mean, is this the length? I mean, what kind of what kind of a diary are we looking at here as a physical object?
1: Yeah, exactly. And we we still have all of them. They are in a secure off-site location, which shall which shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> but, but we have we have made arrangements. Eventually, we will be depositing these uh, diaries with the Provincial Archives of New Brunswick because we do want other people um, to read them. We are just waiting because there are some sensitive materials in them. So. Oh, uh, we need to wait a few more years for a few family members to come. T- perhaps come to terms with what we've done with the diaries and the fact that they're still there before we release them all to the public. But we hope that other historians will use them. But there are 10 commercially produced volumes, um, and there are photos of some of them in the book. they are are five-year diaries that run from August 10th, 1945 to March 19th, 1992 um, when uh, when Ida was 86 um, and health uh, unfortunately prevented her from writing any further. And there are commercial produced diaries um, she was able to write um, in the margins she write she wrote all over them that's the the beauty right it wasn't just one line per day she was writing in the margins she would write on below one sentence on top of one sentence so it was difficult in some cases to decipher this but after a while like like in, as most historians know you get used to her handwriting and more importantly her abbreviations too. a lot of things she would she would use abbreviations for like AR, which is her husband's name, or she would use Periods or explanation mar- explanation marks to highlight different things. So it does take some time. It's not as if you open them up and, oh, yes, everything becomes evident r- immediately. But they're still a lot of fun to read. And of course, I'm the bit of the outsider, right? I Fortunately, I was able to meet Ida a couple of times before she died. But for me, she was a remarkable woman through her diaries. So I was able to bring a bit more of that quote unquote objectivity to, to these documents.
0: Okay, so the cat's out of the bag. Uh, this is this is Bonnie's grandma. Bonnie, describe her to us. What kind of person was this?
2: Well, according to everyone that knew her, she was certainly a very cheerful, positive woman. Um, as I mentioned earlier, she was the the grandmother of the entire clan. But just in terms of of, of her background, she grew up in a large family. So she's used to having family around her at all times. She grew up in the vicinity of Sussex, which was a rural community in New Brunswick. Eventually, she moved with A.R., her husband, and her only daughter, Barbara, to St. John, New Brunswick, which is where they spent their entire adult lives. And I guess if I was to think of four words that describe Ida, one of the words would be home. She really found home to be the center place, the most important place of all. And indeed, they bought a ramshackle house in St. John, New Brunswick, on the west side at 213 Queen Street West. And it became really the center of hospitality for the entire extended family. So one word would be home. One word would be family. Family was very important. Work. That's why we call the book just the usual work, because she worked constantly. Mm -hmm. Whether she was working outside the home, she did that sporadically, or work in the home. Um, We talk quite a bit about that in the book. And her faith would be the last word. Uh, Very important part of her life was her Baptist faith. So that kind of encapsulates her a bit.
0: I have to say, Bonnie, she reminds me of my grandmother, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I found your book so captivating. Uh, my my grandmother was born in 1907, so three years before your grandma, who was born in 1910. Uh, my grandmother lived to be over 100 years old. She died in a 101st year, but she never kept a diary, and I, I'm profoundly regretful of that. <laughs> um, so, Bonnie, you say at one point that there are over 500 Known women's diaries that are out there ready to be explored by historians, and we at the Champlain Society actually did a podcast many years ago. Uh, it was a diary on Lucy Everett Morrison, and I did it with uh, Gail Campbell, and this was another uh, New Brunswick diarist. So I'm kind of wondering what is it about women in New Brunswick who keep diaries uh, and whose families preserve these diaries, which is just as important. Um, how does Ida's diary rank uh, in the set of five hundred known diaries? What what makes her diary special?
2: Do you think? I think one of the reasons is it's long run. I mean, it, it runs from nineteen forty-five to ninety-two, so forty-seven years, almost fifty years. Now there are other diaries that also cover long periods, but not so continuously. Right? There are very few parts of the diary. That are blank. So it's a continuous run for 47 years. They're also penned by a a working-class woman. A lot of the diaries that we have in existence are penned by middle-class women or elite women. So Ida Martin provides the voice for a working-class woman, which is really important. We also think these diaries are significant because they cover the post-World War II period. Um, a lot of the diaries that we have um, to to peruse today are 18th and 19th or early 20th century diaries. So the diaries we're looking at are significant for the time period they cover. And lastly, I guess um, I think they're significant because they cover um, Saint John, New Brunswick. I mean, a lot of the diaries um, are about Ontario or British Columbia. Um, so I think it's really important to have a diary. That covers this region. We don't think that uh, Canadians are aware enough of the rich history um, in this province and in this region more generally. So, so Michael, what's
0: it like to be working class in St. John, New Brunswick uh, in the post-war period?
1: Well, it's, it's fascinating in, in many ways. I mean, one, one of the key themes of the book is change and continuity. Um, the change being the rise of modernity and the welfare state in post-1945 St. John. It was evident, but many working-class families didn't necessarily embrace it, um, in part because they didn't have um, the financial wherewithal to embrace new technologies like new washing machines, new cars. So... Instead, many like uh, Ida and AR relied upon their union. AR was a longshoreman, local 273 of the International Longshoremen's Association. And this was a union that looked after its members for a long period of time. Indeed, um, Ida was able to, uh, when AR passed, to live a fairly comfortable life on his union pension. But they also relied upon the welfare state. Uh, the welfare state was was evident, and it is something that they turned to whether it be um, what would become CPP and other elements of of the welfare state, including medical benefits as well. But the union also provided um, medical benefits. I think what's interesting too, at least the longshoremen that Ida and AR were associated with and discussed, they didn't aspire to be middle class. I think they were class conscious. They were well aware of their working class status. That became very evident when the longshoremen were on strike or walked out um, over many things, right? They went on on strike over pay. They walked out over parking spaces and the lack thereof. Um, there were many things that anchored them on, on the port. And so they were class conscious, but they didn't necessarily aspire to be middle class, however we wanted to define that middle class. And then, of course, they relied upon a working class family economy. And there's the continuity as well. Ida took in borders. Um, Ar scavenged when when the port wasn't when he wasn't working at the port. He was a truck driver. He would cut down trees and sell uh, sell them at, at Christmas time. In some cases, on Crown land, which was illegal, but he did it nonetheless <laughs> because he he needed the money. Um, and he was and, and he was a miser, right? There's a great story that um, that unfortunately didn't make it into the the book. It ended up on the cutting room floor, but he would take when he, when he needed to paint his house, because the house is on the, the cover of, of the book and when he would need to paint his house, he would buy right water-based paint, and he would water it down and use it for at least two years. And <laughs> after a while, he would start to say, because the paint wouldn't adhere, it would start to crack, and he would say, oh, they don't make paint like they used to these days, right? Well, of course they didn't, because he kept watering it down. Um, and he would refuse to pay anyone to do anything that he thought he could do. So, for example, when the car broke down, he thought he could fix it. He couldn't really, but and Ida, of course, comments upon this as well, right? He was always tinkering. Yes, it seems to be a recurring theme. Yeah, he's always tinkering, whether he's trying to fix the car, he's trying to fix the dryer, (laughs) he's trying to fix the furnace. And he does, but he doesn't, right? And Ida is thinking, I wish he would just get someone who knows what they're doing to to do this. Um, But ultimately, uh, they don't. Yeah, because he because he's a he's a miser, Um, and I think and also of course there's pride there and there's working class masculinity there as well that that having someone else repair his home or his car I think was a threat to his masculinity. He may not have have phrased it that way but i think ida was phrasing it that way
0: well that sounds awfully familiar ar for our listeners is alan robert alan robert martin he's the husband of our heroine ida um but michael i mean you guys describe this couple ida and ar um working class they move into a home they uh, it's a detached house in saint john it uh, sounds like a a nice a nice place to live. They have a car. They sound to me awfully middle class sometimes.
1: In some ways, although the car, they never bought it something that was new. It was always new to them. Uh, it was always breaking down. Um, and th- they would never buy anything that was new. Whether it's modern to te- any, any form of modern technology, um, and you think back to Joy Parr's wonderful work on, on technology in the household and how it transformed it, yes. But they didn't necessarily embrace that, um, in part because they didn't couldn't afford it, or if they could afford it, they didn't see the need. If something wasn't broken, they were going to, or if something did break, they would sooner fix it. And I think that's the continuity with the 19th century, that this notion of if it's broken, you just throw it away and buy something new, a very consumer-oriented, middle-class society. For them, that wasn't the case. For them, if it's broken, we'll fix it, even though I was frustrated with A.R.'s attempts to fix those things. But for them, that that, that would be extravagant. And that was not something that was, I think, in their proverbial DNA. And that's not to romanticize it either.
0: No, yeah, no, no, no. Tell me about Ida's working life. I mean, for for a working class woman, she does have spells when she does have an employer, but she also supplements this with uh, piecework, various contracts in her life?
1: Yes, so she worked for a dry, local dry cleaning company, um, but then she took in borders, uh, she cut people's hair, but in some cases she wouldn't accept... Money would be more so barter, right? So, and for her, that would be back to Bonnie's earlier point about family her immediate family, but also her extended family, and that would be members of, of her local community. So, if someone needed something done, you did it, you babysat as well. But she didn't accept money, it was more bartering. So, again, a change in continuity the change being the welfare state and how it did help working class families financially. And I think that's certainly the case for Ida and AR, but also that that. that continuity with the late 19th century where you rely upon yourselves and you rely upon your local community and you barter as opposed to exchange money. Or you just do it for, because, and for Ida also, her religious faith. She she just would see that as doing God's work as well.
0: Right. What were her social views?
1: They, well, I mean, they were... They were conservative. I mean, the, both she and, and A.R., I mean, in what, at one point, they even worked for the Conservative Party of, of New Brunswick. But I think that was more because of personalities. Um, but they, Ida, in particular, was a temperance advocate, um, a staunch Baptist. A.R. embraced religion later in his life, um, much, much later in his life as, as he grew older, Um but they were not, um, quote unquote, radical, especially not Ida, in terms of looking at the, at the world. She was still very much a, a royalist, as it were. She saw the, the, the royal family as, as part of, of the bedrock of, of Canadian society. Um, but what's curious though, is that in many ways, Like Some diaries are introspective, especially 19th century diaries. These ones, not so much. Ida didn't talk much about her feelings, so in one sense it was hard to to tease out some of her social views. So we were able to do that by what she would write about, Uh, so the royal family, for example. But she wasn't sitting around reading Claines or Chatelaine. And and because she wouldn't, she would see that as, as a waste of time. Nor and the, the idea of spending money on herself wouldn't is not something. Um, but politically conservative, without question.
0: I mean, this is St. John we're talking about. We're, it's very Protestant, uh, very English. Uh, And very
1: Baptist as well.
0: Yes. I mean, what would have been her views on the emergence of the Acadian element in New Brunswick society, especially as the 1960s roll around and Acadians live their own quiet revolution? Indeed. Delicately said, Not that comfortable with it,
1: (laughs) to be quite honest.
0: No, you point to a certain conservatism in her views.
1: Yes, no, exactly. And I think Robichaud, not probably someone she necessarily favored per se. Um, But the the irony with that is that, unfortunately, that French-English divide still exists in this province. Canada's only official bilingual province and the two solitudes – are unfortunately alive and well in New Brunswick as well. so the the notion of because we still have an Anglo rights uh, association in in this province, yes. and Ida would probably be a member of that association if she were alive today.
0: Bonnie, I want to ask you um, where would Ida sit in terms of feminism? Well, I take it she never talked about it much.
2: no, I don't know if she, if she would recognize the word to be honest. <laughs> Um, but speaking from a very personal perspective, uh, she did support my um, post-secondary education. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one that contributed money to going to university. Um, I was the first uh, member of my family to go to university, and she supported that. Um, she supported other women in a variety of ways, whether it be um babysitting children while their mother went off to work. She helped family members. Like we had a a case of a marriage breakdown in the extended family, and she would help that family, even drove them to divorce court um, to to help. So I I don't think she'd recognize feminism, but she definitely supported her granddaughter, her daughter, and other women in the community.
0: I get the sense that it's uh, a really a, a feminism of solidarity.
2: Yes. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and maybe a, like a, a family solidarity in particular, community solidarity. Yes. Now,
0: in terms of her politics, uh, Michael hinted at it. She, she voted conservative. Did she actually uh, participate in elections in terms of, of actually like uh, going door to door? Or was it that kind of political action or was it more passive? It wasn't
2: uh, door-to-door, but they did work the polls. Oh. So the Conservative Party would hire them, and they would work the polls. Uh, they would help people um, vote at the at the polls. Um, Barbara would type up voters' lists. That's your mom. Yeah, that's my mother. So they were active on, on that level. But even though they weren't what we would call maybe a political activist, definitely, as as Michael said earlier, Ida was very interested in politics generally, you know, whether it was local, regional, national, even international. Mm -hmm. She would follow it religiously on television. And we think that the mass communications revolution in the post-war period had a really big impact on on her in terms of widening her world. So she became um, much more engaged as a citizen, I think because of the developments of the communication mediums of that period. And became involved in so much as she would watch um, elections, for example, until two in the morning. (laughs) She would engage in kitchen table um, discussions about politics and try to get arguments going. Um, So very interested in, as Michael said, writing letters, um, articulating her, her feelings about this.
0: Bonnie, she she passed away in 2007. She was 97 years old. You knew her very well personally. As we go through these diaries, as we go through your book, should we have the idea that she was a happy woman or how would you qualify her on that broad spectrum of happiness, unhappiness?
2: I think she faced a lot of challenges for sure. Um, For example, she became a widow. She lost lost her husband. Um, There became a period after she lost her husband where many members of her extended family started to die as well. Many of her brothers, her sister. So this became, you know, very difficult for her. But we think one of the the biggest challenges for her actually was um, leaving the conjugal home, leaving that house that they bought in the 1930s, 213 Point Street. In some ways, I think that was harder than A.R.'s death. Not, not in a personal sense, but just in, a, in the sense of, of um, what that meant, uh, moving away from that house. Um, indeed, one of the most emotional entries in the diary was after she heard that she would have to move out of that house. She said something like, my mind is in a turmoil. And that's very introspective for her. She doesn't usually share those kinds of feelings, so the fact that she felt that way about leaving the home, uh, I think, was was quite significant.
0: It was a big part of her identity.
2: It was. It was.
0: It's nice that you have the picture on the cover of of uh, of Ida and uh, Ar and I take it your, and your mom Mar- Barbara in front of the house.
2: Yes. yes. They
0: look. They look very proud.
2: They do. They do. But in terms of whether she was happy or not, I think I think overall she probably was. I think, um, given the significance of family, um, she always had family around her. Even as she aged, many of her nieces and nephews came to visit. So it was a very close knit uh, clan in that sense. So as long as they were around her, she she took joy from that, and also the strength of her faith, right? Um, the fact that death is not the end. And she really believed that. So even though she was suffering physically, emotionally, as she aged, um, she knew a better world was coming. Um, and I think that really that really did provide an emotional bedrock for her. What were her
0: gravest aggravations? Oh, well,
1: I think that there were, Two uh, there were two main <laughs> ones, um, and they're very much interconnected. The first one, I think, is um, uh, alcohol, her husband, and, well, and <laughs> AR's drinking, yeah. I mean, this, this was something that, that she had a great deal of difficulty coming to terms with, um, because he would and he and he would drink, uh, even on the job. Um, and again, as a longshoreman, thats it's already a dangerous job and to drink on the job makes it even more dangerous. And of course, he suffered a lot of injuries on the job, not always because of alcohol, but he did suffer a lot of injuries while on the job. And, and I think she associated that, uh, the alcohol with the injuries, plus the alcohol took him away from the family. Right? So he would spend, after after a day of work on the poor, he and his workmates would head off to the local tavern. And there would be many times where she'd be writing, just wondering where he is. Um, and so she would say he's being quote unquote bad. And that would mean, eventually we realized that that means he's uh, drunk somewhere. And he would be coming home very, very late at night and she would still be waiting up for him. She wouldn't let on to him that she was waiting up but she was and she saw that as, as taking away from the family in terms of not being there as a father and a husband and also to, uh, taking away from the family in terms of the money that he spent on alcohol and then the other the other element of that is working class masculinity and this is and which is part of that alcohol consumption and Craig Heron's work it, it highlights that quite nicely and we uh, one of the Unique things about these diaries is that, and we discussed this on on one of our chapters, is we do know a lot about working class masculinity, but now we see working class masculinity through the eyes of a working class woman in the post-World War II period, and how she derided it, made fun of it to a certain extent, um, and but also we could, we could chart it, and we could see that after a while, even AR may have started to realize that his masculinity and was actually working against him, because as he aged, he couldn't keep up with his younger co-workers. He couldn't keep up in terms of working on the job, He couldn't keep up in terms of drinking, Um, and so he started to realize that maybe this, what what we would call working-class masculinity, hasn't always been a friend to him. So I think for Ida, the the working-class masculinity encapsulates all of it, but the alcohol being a key part of that masculinity, especially as Longshoremen, um, really did... Keep her awake at night, um, and and really frustrated her, if not to the point of of angering her as well. Um, if there's any emotion there, I think that's the. If there's anger that comes out or frustration, it does come out over alcohol.
0: Do you think? I mean, again, this is a diary where it's it's mostly jottings. She she would record events. She would record impressions. I, I, Michael, I mean, if I asked you to guess, do you think that you, how faithful do you think she was in recording? these frustrations with, with AR. Do, you th- do I mean, do you think that she recorded every one of them? Do you think she, or do you think she held back?
1: I think she probably held back to a certain extent because I think after a while it took a toll, an emotional toll on her by recording these. I mean, she, she still does. There are a number of them, uh, notably when, when he's working at the port, but if, there are even cases where he was uh, drinking and driving when he was uh, driving dump trucks. And this that caused her Uh, constant um, concern and I think after a while she had to stop um, again a bit of a speculation but I think she had she couldn't share all of it and also because she knew that that some family members would be reading the diaries right so in that case too this is this is an instance where we have a diarist who is writing for other people now I don't think she would have ever envisioned us doing what we've done and 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 writing this book and, and and putting it all out there I don't think she would ever... i uh,
0: doing a podcast on it, no less. <laughs>
1: never would have entered into her mind. But she did know that the family was using it. And they would, read, they would go back to the diary and say, oh, wait a minute, when was so-and-so born? Or did we miss someone's wedding anniversary? How, how can we confirm that? Well, they would turn to Ida and say, "What well, did you record that in your diary? So she knew at least the immediate family had access to it and would read it. So as a result of that, she, there was some self-censorship. Um, even the, the, the instance that Bonnie noted about the divorce, she didn't provide a lot of detail um, about that because, again, divorce even was something that, that I mean, for her, she married for life because, again, it was part of of her religious faith as, as well. Um, so yes, I think some of it was was kept out to, deliberately. Easy to say, of course, after the fact, but um, I think it took a toll on on her without question.
0: Bonnie, is there anything left of the world that Ida has left behind?
2: I think there is. Uh, as, as Michael suggested at the beginning, one of the tensions we, we like to to play with in the book is the tension between change and continuity. And I think there's definitely some continuity um, as we're sitting here in 2021, looking looking back at this. Um, We still have a really strong um, extended family network in St. John. One group of them is called the Friars Girls, and they're actually a singing group in St. John. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of memories of, of Ida. So I think that that family dynamic is still, still exists in St. John. Um, and I think she'd be very pleased about that. Um, I think also um, when you think about the west side of St. John, there are still many families there who live very hand-to-mouth existences. So in that sense, um, looking at the history of St. John, particularly of that, the, the lower west side, um, it was a lot of continuity there in terms of struggling to make ends meet. And that's something that Ida was very familiar with.
0: Their house still uh,
2: stands? It does. I th- she would be very um, upset by what it looks like today because they tried to keep it up as as well as they could. Yes. Um, but it, it still exists. And I think that's probably ten of them. To, to saying that, um, that the work that they put into it is probably the reason why it's still still mm-hmm. standing. Yes. Yeah. Um, one, one last thing I, I might add is that um, obviously coming back to her faith, her faith was also very, very important. And the Baptist faith in St. John and in the Maritimes generally is still very strong. So that faith community that she was a part of still exists. And indeed, um, her, her daughter and family and extended family, um, you know, they, they're still um, churchgoers, and, and some of them still go to the same church that she did. So those elements of her life still exist.
0: Well, your book is a remarkable study of the wonders of ordinary life and the happiness of ordinary life as, as a couple goes through the highs and lows of ordinary life and the small triumphs and the, the tragedies that that visit all of us in ordinary life and to actually see somebody take the trouble of recording that for for 50 years almost is is truly a gift uh to be to, to be had is there any thought you mentioned it originally i think it was you michael who said something about uh leaving the diaries in some sort of archive at some point but is there any thought uh, to putting them online so that they could be mined by historians or by anybody who might be interested, mined for, you know, the the various trends. I mean, you've picked up on all of them, but I mean, there's going to be other stuff that people might be curious about. Any thought to putting these things online?
1: Oh, I think so. We we already have them digitized.
0: Um, oh, wonderful! So
1: I, I think that would. So I think when when we deposit them with the Provincial Archives of New Brunswick, we'll probably um, also make them available. Um, if not, if the archives doesn't, because we'll also give them the digitized copies. But if they choose not to do that, we can still make them available um, as as digital copies. the The problem is that digital the, the, they don't transcribe well digitally because she, she's she's written all over them. So it will take some time. And it's just so much fun reading the originals, right? It's yes. nice, it's, I still love to be tactile, but but, <laughs> yeah, but we still indeed want to, want to uh, make them as widely available as possible. Because as we conclude the very concluding sentence of the book, we hope that historians will make diaries part of just the usual work of being an historian.
0: Well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, the Champlain Society is dedicated to, you know, making the documents of life available to to Canadians. And um, I think that this is such an exceptional document that you guys have analyzed in your book. Uh, I can just, I can, I can barely imagine what historians of the future are going to be able to do, you know, using all sorts of You know, software to take this 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 fantastic diary and and take it apart and see where the trends are Uh, different trends beyond the ones that you've you guys have picked up. So, so well, Uh, let's just say that we hope that uh, Ida Martin's diary has a long life
1: indeed.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much. Indeed. We hope so. We hope so. We hope so.
1: And, and okay. because we, we do not want this to be the last word on no. on Ida Martin, we want it to be the beginning of looking at at her life and the life of St John and working class St John.
0: I think uh, I think that's the right ambition. Thank you very much Michael Boudreau and Bonnie Huskins. It was a pleasure having you on board.
2: It was a pleasure being thank here. You. Thank you very really much. really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: That was Michael Boudreau and Bonnie Huskins, and their book is Just the Usual Work, The Social Worlds of Ida Martin, Working Class Diarist. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual memberships make everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to ChamplainSociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutzil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 10th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.